RPN, the Roddenberry Podcast Network. The Trek Files, Season 4, Episode 21, Star Trek Bartender's Guide and Memory Beta Fanzine. Welcome to The Trek Files, a look into the archives of Roddenberry Entertainment from the personal files of Gene Roddenberry. And now your host, Dr. Trek, Larry Nemechek. Hey, welcome, welcome, all you Star Trek fans, all you Star Trek historians, all you canonistas, I say that lovingly, and of course, all you Trekophiles spelled with an F. Hey, we have a fun one. Well, I hope they're all fun, but we have an especially fun episode for you this week. So look, as always, take a look over at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thetrekfiles, because we always, unlike 99.9% of most podcasts, give you a document to read at the same time you're enjoying our conversation about that document, or two, as it turns out this week. So check it out. We have some fun stuff, and I'll be right back. You can take a listen to this sample first, but then I'll be right back with this week's fun document and fun guest. It is difficult to see any value to Starfleet personnel in this rather ridiculous book. However, to Earth's civilian auxiliaries, there may be some value in the area of entertainment. As a Starfleet officer, I found that the titles of several recipes were somewhat belittling to the men of the Enterprise, women too, although I found the Randy Yeoman quite apt. Well, all right, Trekophiles, if you did indeed take a look at our documents this week, you'll know that that little quotation is from none other <laughs> than James T. Kirk, apparently. Uh, apparently an unlicensed James T. Kirk, of course. And that's the subject of this week's uh, topic here, because if nothing else, Star Trek, I-, I don't know, 54 years, it's ups and downs, it's dead, it's back alive. Fans have a lot to do with that, and fans did all kinds of things to keep it alive over the years, um, most of which included indulging their own passions, and that's what we've got this week. Uh, A couple of unlicensed, don't say this is a dirty word, it's what you do when no one cares, and you want to make your own Star Trek until it comes back and people wise up, and you get to pay the money for it. And that falls into the realm of licensing and marketing and licensing, and you know what? This week, I'm still thrilled to have someone who has worked in that world, as well as being one of the most awesome Star Trek fans you'll ever meet. Aw. Holly Amos. Holly, welcome to the Trek Files. Hi. Thank you for having me. I am so glad. to. You know, we were going through this, and I said, I don't know. It's so funny because attitudes about, I think generationally, attitudes about unlicensed stuff, it used to be just what you did for fun, and there was nothing else happened. And when there were fallow years, like the 70s or like the last 12 years before Discovery, People did things in a vacuum because no one else was doing it. Correct. And then we have the boom times, and there's all kinds of merchandise. Some of it is higher. Some of it is simpler, like T-shirts. and it's feast, or, feast or famine is what yeah, it is. Yeah, yeah, it's feast or famine. And some things are more esoteric, like the really in-depth like reference guides and you know, canon-creating things. But, um, so, but these are, the other thing is these are 70s. These are early era right. pieces. So they're like really passion pieces. These are baby Star Trek. So what do you, what do you think when you see this? Had you, I, had you, are you familiar with a lot of like seventies era, like the? First I mean, wave? I am now, considering <laughs> that you know I've been working. Uh, I've worked on two different archives, that being mm-hmm. the official archive at CBS, and now I'm working on the Roddenberry archive. Um, so I, I am familiar, a lot more familiar with the stuff than I had been 
in the past. Um, and I find the 70s stuff fascinating. Like, oh, I'm sorry to use a word from from Spock. <laughs> Don't you um, dare apologize for uh, that. <laughs> but no, like these, they were people back in the day were, and that's not to say that they're not creative now, but like this stuff was, was in Star Trek's infancy. So they really didn't have a lot to expand on. Like this is it's the first wave, right? Yeah. So this stuff is super interesting because they were in the first, and I mean, to be fair, like they didn't, some of this stuff, like they didn't know whether or not Star Trek was going to be coming back. Well, that's the whole. It's what I call. Um, it keeps getting updated, but basically, I say it's canon in a vacuum. Right. It's like there is nothing else, or even if there, even if there's new creation being made, like the movie era in the '80s, you got two to make it about math. You got two hours every couple of years. Right. And there were all kinds of aspects of the Star Trek universe that you likely weren't going to see that gap filled in. Right. So why not go out and do it yourself? Right. And then the onset of gaming really drove that beyond even the nonfiction nerds. Right. Because to game, you need a universe filled out. That's fair. Right? Yes. Right? <laughs> so whether it's the original, like, Luzoki little role-playing game, which preceded FASA, FASA, or FASA, or then we get into Last Unicorn and all the role-playing since then, and then video games after right. that. But in the early days, right, it's like if, if those 79 hours didn't cover it, then... Yeah. Yeah. And so we got a couple of examples here. and But that's what it was. It was like, oh, I'll just make it up and I'll be cool. The other cool thing, of course, as a snapshot in history is like our science guide, if we look at that first. Of course, memory beta here yeah. has nothing to do with memory beta. No, and I, right. it's amazing that <laughs> that somebody used that back in, when is this? 70, August of 1977 is when this document was oh, written Oh, this out. is late first wave. Yeah. This so is, this is yeah. this is into when they they knew that there was going to be something else. I think at this point they still probably thought it was going to be another TV show. Um, getting into when they transitioned into we're going to make this into a right. movie instead. Well, back and forth, back and forth, yes. back and forth. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of back and forth. The ping ponging of TV or movie, TV or movie. Well, it's you know we and we talk about un, when I say unlicensed stuff. People obviously we had fanzines and fan fiction from day one. Right. When the original series was still on. And people think about fan uh, fanzines as fiction, mm -hmm. and that was, I think, probably 98% of it. But there was a lot of, and I speak from experience here, <laughs> there were a lot of people that loved the background and the maddening gaps, and well, I'll fill that in. And different people had different expertise. Some people were into science or, or astronomy, and some people were into you know physiology here, right. you know, medicine for this. Some people were into bartending. Yeah. <laughs> that was what they brought to it. So I don't know what... There's a lot of, uh, you know, the mel just like the original series did, the melding of real science or real history with a made-up or a future projected. Right. And I, I think that it's amazing to see how people's fandom uh, came to be via their profession, if, if that's mm -hmm. a good way to put it. So this, per this person that wrote this is, is a doctor. Like, I would assume that they're an MD, that they're not just putting doctor on their name for funsies, <laughs> like that they're probably actually a doctor. They're really a philosophy professor. <laughs> yeah, right. And I, I would probably say that they were inspired by McCoy at this point. I mm -hmm. mean, there are so many people that tell the actors who play the current doctors. I mean, the actress oh, who right. plays Beverly Crusher talks about this all the time. Oh, that right. She has people that tells her, I became a doctor because of your character. And she's just blown away by that. Um, there, are, you know, there are people that became NASA engineers because of this, and it's interesting to see how back in the day, or even now, how their profession dictates mm -hmm. their fandom, and 
these are really interesting to see how how they just wanted to celebrate. Well, well, you know, they took the thing that was familiar. They see the broad brush of Star Trek on screen, and then they take what they know, what their niche is. Either they're they're a student, or they are yeah, professional, professional engineer. Right. You know, Star Trek. We talk about engineers and doctors. Star Trek inspired everything from like sociologists to government diplomats. I yeah. mean, the whole range of people that took something out of out of Star Trek. The original series, much less all the ones that came before. Um, but yeah, it's but what and the other funky thing is what a lot of people that are nonfiction fans get off in. And here we're talking about medical science and physiology is merging the real thing with some with some future projected because that's what the series did and that's right. what they've all done and. It gets bashed as technobabble later on, but that's what attracts <laughs> a lot of It's so of funny that sometimes the technobabble becomes like a real thing. Like pad was right. just random. They decided they were going to call it pad. They assigned what it meant, and then now there's, you know, iPads exist. I'm still mad when they brought the first iPad out. Apple did not send little copies to uh, you know, number one and number two to Michael Kuder and Rick Sternbach. I'm still... <laughs> I'm still mad about that. I think it should have been. When did iPads become a thing? Like late 2000s, right? It was after social media because right. people were – I was complaining about it on Twitter, if not Facebook. So It was after the iPhone <laughs> too, right? Oh, yeah. So oh, it would yes. have been like 2007, 2008? technology, yeah. Anyways, but my point is yes. like back in the day, like we see it as – I mean even watching TNG, you see Jordy just techno babbling. But some of that stuff became real. So well, right. can't call it techno babble anymore. Well, so this, so this, this fanzine here, this one, this medical uh, edition, and what's funny is, you know, different people. Look, he did 125 copies, right? Yeah. Right. So you did this locally, and sometimes you would take a classified ad in one of the, you know, stamp and paper, you know, zine catalogs or the the well committee's directory of zines if you were really ambitious, or you went to your big local convention in L.A., Chicago, or New York, <laughs> or Houston. And you sold them to your friends, and maybe you, you, you know, and some things disseminated. And this one, again, is from the Trek Files. So this one, these two editions, actually, these two copies, found their way to Gene's library. So somehow they got to Los Angeles, either, you know, given to him, he or Majel, at a con somewhere. Or, mailed, or mailed, to, mailed. Right, mailed to Desilu or Par- well, Paramount. This would be Paramount at this point. Um, but, you know, they're, they're small distribution. And then things happen like, about the same time here, the medical reference came together as a zine. Jeffrey Mandel and Doug mm-hmm. Drexler did it as a as a as a fanzine, thick fanzine, which then got picked up by Valentine and sold professionally because right. they needed something tech manual one year. And B. Joe's Concordance said, "Quick, quick, give us something else to be the Christmas gift." For and who year. knows more about Star Trek than Star Trek fans? Well, that's it. See, they were very smart, and they just they literally grabbed their pages and and published them. And and they get into a lot of this too. And Jeff Mandel had had a fanzine before this. And there's really a, because I was I came up through this world when I was a baby, but there was really a thing at the time, you had no idea that there would ever be a Star Trek, or if there was uh, anymore, any anymore, future, right. and you felt like it was a stillborn universe. So who cares? I mean, like you might as well pitch in and flesh out how a Vulcan neck pinch worked, right? Which is actually really interesting because no one else was ever going to do it. Really? Oh wait, a mo- okay. Well, they didn't do it in that movie, so you know what I'm saying that's the two hours right. every two years. That's so people felt. Not only welcome, but they felt relieved. But then people actually took it seriously. A lot of most of the people who got off on this kind of thing, history or astronomy or medical, medical. science, and they said, "Like, what's our? Let's get a brain trust together. Let's get me, and I'll get some people, and we'll consult." 
And then maybe there were two or three or four versions around the country, and then so maybe people all through whatever means, fanzines, right. the old Trek magazine, or who you know, and then the brain, the, the five or six people in the country without an internet and a social media <laughs> lean on, would get together and compare notes, and you know eventually something winds up in the medical reference, and then you kind of go, well, this is official, and it's official until it winds up on screen 10 right. years later or 12 years later. But the, the world then... Or it gets contradicted on screen. <laughs> right, right, right. Well, now we have instant, all that is an instant. Even if it's not on screen, it's people bashing things out. I mean, I say hashing them out, brainstorming things online, on Twitter, on right. Facebook. There's, well, it's an immediacy. There's a, right, it's an immediacy. And you don't have to think you're five guys in a, or gals in a, in a wilderness Thank somewhere writing, <laughs> writing paper and stamp. You can all just have a Facebook group and talk or a Reddit group and talk yeah. about it. Anyway. And what I what I find uh, interesting about this one in particular is that you know the story behind the Vulcan neck pinch like it wasn't mm-hmm. wasn't really in the script like it was a thing that just kind of they did off cuff. Um, Shatner kind of just well you can just pinch me and I'll fall over and that they, like they came up with that on set and then there's people that are like let's figure out a way. Yeah for that to make sense medically, yeah. even though it's a fictional thing that they just well, sort of made up. Well, it's on screen. Yeah. It must be real, Holly. Yeah. So it has to happen <laughs> somehow. <laughs> now it's a race to find the best explanation. Well, the, and the other thing is, as you see, especially by the time of like DS9 and Voyager and especially Enterprise, all the, you know, at, the, at Next Gen, none of those writers had been fans. David and Dorothy got run off at the beginning. I know. <laughs> and that was the closest thing. But by the time you had Ron... Moore and mm-hmm. Ranesh Varia and Brian Fuller and Narain Schenker. By the time those guys filtered into writing mm-hmm. and started to climb the ladder, Brian Fuller. They, they were the guys that read these when they were teenagers. When they were kids, yeah. And so bit by bit, a lot of the nonfiction stuff wound up getting to screen and then had to be Star Trek is retconned. old enough that there is always going to be somebody involved with it that read stuff like this or was a fan as a child. Like Every yes. aspect yes. of the franchise now has someone in it that can be like, I've been a fan since I was a kid. And if some of the some of the feeling around like Discovery and Picard, I think, that, that CBS and, and I think Wise fandom is trying to combat is that, oh, my God, there's so much Star Trek out there. How can I ever sit down and watch Discovery and Picard? Because I don't know. I haven't watched all 474 you know, episodes or whatever. It's like you don't have to. And they very smartly try to create the new series where you don't. But even right. if you want to dive in. You think, oh, there's, it's all been done. What's there to be created? It hasn't because there are so many pockets of the, yeah. of the Star Trek universe that have not been fleshed out. And right. if you feel like doing your own little fanzine story or your own little you know, equivalent of a Vulcan neck pinch, whatever, then go for it. Headcanon. It, he, yes, headcanon. Or headcanon to me stays in your head. But this is like paper cannon. Yeah, this is paper cannon. <laughs> this is paper cannon. So this is a very serious Bit yeah, that I this mean, doctor got into reading this is like I was. We were just talking about this brachial plexus from the upper trapezius muscle. Like these are hardcore. Like this is mm-hmm. not easy to read. It's like technobabble or something. So, well, but this isn't techno. Like this is this is real medical cerebral ischemia like this is unless he's working i'm not medical either but i'm sure a medical person can read this and see maybe one word out of 10 has been a has been a made up vulcany new word that do uh, do we i mean but i'm reading this and most of it looks like it's actual medical terminology then he did his job didn't he yeah which is impressive it is local vasospasm maybe that's but holly before your eyes totally cross (laughs) 
Let's look at our other example of fan fiction publishing writing here. The Star Trek Bartender's Guide and Punch Book. Which is so fun. Hey, Art Canfield. Now, this is earlier. This is from, with his introduction by, and by the, yes, James T. Kirk wrote that introduction. Thank you. Thank you, uh, Art Canfield. <laughs> right, so it's February 76. Uh, they're just about to name the first shuttle Enterprise. Um, gosh, Bartender's Guide. Well, that's never, that's never been an idea that's cropped up in, in funsy Star Trek stuff before. No, and it makes more sense for this. This it's wild that this is in that this was made in the seventies because, in terms of you know alcohol appearing in Star Trek, like how many things were in the original series? Let's see, sorry, and Brandy. Oh well, lots of things. Finnegal's Folly, but definitely uh, yes. not as much as there is now. As soon as Deep Space Nine came along, and there was an actual bar. Well, true, but they had <laughs> seven years versus three years. Right, <laughs> that's fair. <laughs> And when you took the Pike Boyce scene where he's like, people will tell their, their bartender things they wouldn't tell their doctor. And that kind of, you could see the early oomph of that with McCoy and then it only, you know, resurrected a couple of times. Does it make a good drink with scotch? <laughs> um, you, you'd see that, but that was kind of a threat. And then, of course, then you have the PC world of the 80s and Synthahol Hall and all that. And then you have almost the, the swing away from that where they almost made fun of Synthahol Hall in-universe, in yes. right? And then you get to swing back to Archer and his crew who didn't know what Synthahol Hall was. So it's, it's all over the map. But let, you know, to, their, to their credit, look at the preface here. Not the James T. Kirk letter, but they have, a, they have a, 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 you know, an advisory here. This booklet was not written with the intention of promoting the consumption of ethyl alcohol by humankind, humankind or humanoids. Such consumption often causes a gra- – so it's like they've got their advisory warning you know, yeah. in lieu of the time. In lieu of a uh, Trek talk. <laughs> <laughs> Such consumption in its extreme form, appropriately called alcoholism, is considered the worst additive. Addictive, oh, a, a worst addictive drug disease. Sorry. Among humanoids of planet Earth. Apparently wow. they're not, uh, they had, you know, 1976 they hadn't delved into some of the, the chemicals that you could get into quite popularly. That's a hardcore but, disclaimer right there. Uh, yeah. The editors cannot quite pin down the reason this booklet was written. So they're still also in the guise. It's kind of funny. The original technical manual was written with that cover letter of we've, we've intercepted this from, uh, from, um, from the airbase computers. We don't know where it came from. The whole excuse of having the 23rd Century Tech Manual in, in the 1970s was it was pulled out of the file, the, the uh, Tomorrow's Yesterday files. Yes. Right. So they have actually kind of keeping that echo here. And, you know, which I, is on brand. These are still very, you know, we're publishing these pages this week. People can go do these drinks and see what they think. But there's no shortage of, even though I don't think there's been a licensed, we've seen licensed versions and things come before of the, the, the medical end of things. Right. But I don't think we've had a license. I mean, uh, the closest thing that we've had to a licensed alcoholic <laughs> drinks book for Star Trek was actually the cookbook. Right. They had drinks the Neelix in edition it. Cookbook. Yeah, the Neelix edition. Like there are drinks in there, but which uh, are mostly soft core. I mean, you know, like yeah. Jello and Kool Aid and <laughs> <laughs> prop drinks. Yeah, it's prop drinks, and and these are real drinks, and that's probably a, a you know, without having to do their own advisory against uh, drinking, um, probably a I don't know some kind of a, a, a liability issue that licensing wants to make sure that they they're not representing. Well, and I mean, that's always, that was always a discussion too. The same discussion about actual 
weapons, like actual swords, like there was a reason why the licensing department couldn't make a, an actual licensed batleth or knives or anything like that. And the only batleth that they made when I was working in licensing was made out of foam. Yeah. Because then you don't a nerf risk. bat. Left yeah. Or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> not trademark, maybe. Well, and it's not like there's been a shortage of, uh, you know, fan bartender guides exist. There have been these all over the place. But then there have been licensed drinks, like, say, for Vegas for corks. There, we had, you know. Right. And I feel like that was. You know, the and, and now they're. Famously. And, and yeah. now we have, uh, you know. Right. Silver screen, and, and we have uh, wines being made, and hard liquor being made, and beer being made. Um, so by winemakers and liquor makers and all that. But as far as right, as so far as a book book, the book is yeah, no. yeah, yeah. But this is still funny, and I, I'll be interested to see. Uh, hey, Trekophiles, um, you've got these pages now. Why don't you try some of these recipes out and let us know? <laughs> let us know uh, which ones are terrible which ones are terrible and which ones actually got some kind of like better housekeeping seal approval you know actually were taste tested in the the Betty Wino kitchens or whatever and I mean this was before there was I mean some of the stuff in here like creme de menthe it, oh, just the worst <laughs> <laughs> uh, I mean but they Including didn't have the like puns. we have yeah. so many more interesting like mixers and stuff in this day and age and back then they oh tequila the worst well there it is it's <laughs> It's, it's a timer. Listen, Holly, this has been so much fun to uh, drool over, excuse me, to examine the pages of the Bartender's Guide here and the medical reference. This is a lot of fun. Um, thanks for coming by. Thank you for having me. And we'll, I, I'm sure I'll find something else to, to get you back online with us. Ooh, that'd be fun. The Trek Files is produced by Roddenberry Entertainment, executive producer Rod Roddenberry. All of our documents and your chance to comment are available, as always, at facebook.com slash thetrekfiles. Now, for more great podcasts, check out podcast.roddenberry.com. And for more deep diving of Star Trek behind the scenes, visit Dr. Trek and Portal 47, that's me, at larrynimacek.com. Trek well, everybody. Podcast.roddenberry.com. The Roddenberry Podcast Network.